tonight. We've got uh, a lot to discuss this morning that's not uh, super lighthearted, although culturally we want to make a lot of jokes about it and be lighthearted about it because that's where we're at as a society. But uh, you, you heard the verse, verses. Given the topic, here's what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to pray here in a minute to invite God's Spirit to speak. Miss Carrie is gathering children uh, to walk out the door, and she's going to do a lesson to them on anger, kind of piggybacking off what we talked about last week, still talking about how your heart needs change, all those sort of things. But clearly, I mean, read the room, guys. You just saw the verses that we're reading. There are a lot of things I'm going to say to honestly and seriously cover this topic that maybe you don't want your children hearing because you don't want them to ask you about it later. So if that's the case, Miss Carrie, we've got you. She's going to go and take care of them, take them downstairs, and there's going to be a great message. But I'm going to pray. You can send your kids with her during that time, and we'll get to it. Father, thank you for that we get to gather here, man. Thank you that we have your word and that we have some boundary that you've given us to acknowledge these deep, meaningful things that are so confusing in our culture. And I pray that by the power of your spirit that you would speak in these moments and with all the passion and history and, and hurt and tension and pain that all of us walk in from, from these situations, that I walk in from these situations, I pray that beyond anything, your word would be heard and that we would walk from here knowing what you tell us about being your kingdom people in the new humanity you've called us to. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as is in heaven. Amen. All right. So we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount. I don't need to get the board out here and write it again. You've seen me do it a lot, but, but let's just talk. When I say Jesus, you're supposed to think about what? Kingdom. kingdom. That's it. So the rest of your life, when someone says Jesus says, or they talk about Jesus, your first mind needs to go to, how does that relate to the kingdom? Because Jesus came to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes on to say, here's the gospel of the kingdom. Bob Junkle, we've got the Sermon on the Mount. Here we are going through it. What does it mean to be kingdom people? What does it mean to have this new humanity that's redeemed? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It turns out there's a heart issue we all have that Jesus acknowledges, and we constantly read the Sermon on the Mount and discover, I am corrupt. We are corrupt. We are poor in spirit. And our two responses typically to the Sermon on the Mount are either, this is for the sinners out there. This doesn't apply to me. I've figured this out. This isn't my thing. Or we think, oh gosh, Jesus has read my mail, and he knows where I'm at, and he knows my internet browser history, and I am going to hail. Those are the things that go through our mind, right? And so I'm here to say, let's take the word at what it says. Let's listen to Jesus and take the whole counsel of God's word, the whole narrative of the kingdom, of the, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, and talk about what that means for us as individuals, but necessarily as a church, because this was written to a kingdom, a people. So it applies to you person, but it only applies to you person in the entire higher relative stance of the kingdom and the objective coming of his kingdom come, his will be done. And so if you over-personalize it, you miss it. And you become selfish and it becomes about your glory. If you over, oh, this is for everybody, then oh, it doesn't really include me. This is for those people who, you know, whatever, have done other sins, who's actually had affairs, those sort of, no, no, no. See, we're going to find out that this relates to everyone. We're all poor in spirit. And when we stand before Jesus, we don't get to say, ah, but look at the good things I've done, Father. I've done all these great things. We don't get to say that. Jesus says, no, everything you've gotten is a big zero. You have the big goose egg in your bank account. You've got nothing. You were poor in spirit, and you've got nothing before a holy God. And so we walk to him with this posture. Over and over teaching this posture, right? We've got nothing. 
So Jesus is teaching about the new humanity. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about, he said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And so as we see these teachings, there's six of them in a row where he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. He's not saying, let me tweak this because, you know, it wasn't written right before. He's saying, I'm fulfilling it. I'm explaining it to its full extent in how you need to understand it. And there's some fulfillment idea in this whole thing that he keeps teaching. Something is being fulfilled here. We need to understand what he's saying in fulfilling it. And we talked several weeks ago about how all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And so everything needs to point back to him. Just like when we talked about the image of God and we looked at these different words about how God is compassionate and graceful and Eliochim and all these different words, comes back to all of these things culminate and climax in Jesus, right? And so we're going to be talking about that. Last week, Nate talked to us about anger. Um, short, you know, uh, cover to cover that, again, Jesus cares about your heart. You murder people in your heart, right? You commit adultery in your heart. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Jesus cares about your heart. It's interesting that there's a common thread that happens amongst all of us where we think, oh, I'm just angry. It's justified. Let me justify it with this little meme, with this little thing I put on Facebook. Um, we just ignore it. We don't want to say, oh, I'm not bitter like that person who hasn't talked to their sister in 15 years. And we just say, oh, our anger's not that bad. Here's what Jesus wants you to know. When you cage someone in your anger, in your brain, and in your heart, you capture them, you enslave them, and belittle them, and abuse use them to what you think they ought to be. And that puts you being God and you being the judge and you being the captain. That's not what God intended. That's not the love he created you for. And we're going to find over and over that Jesus cares a whole lot about your heart posture and how you perceive other people. And all of it comes back to his greatest commands in Matthew 22 that we'll probably be reading every week. But Jesus cares a lot. When you take someone, you say, hey, I'm angry at you, and I'm going to hold it on the inside. You know, there's the cute little phrase like, bitterness is the poison that you drink, hoping it kills someone else. So you get bitter, and you get angry at someone. What you're doing is you're enslaving them in your own mind. I can create a caricature of your mind. You are a snobby little witch in my mind, and you've done these little things, and I can point to these Facebook things to say that you're just a jerk, and I don't like you. And what you've done is you've caricaturized them. You've belittled them to what you think they should be. Boom, now you're this big in my mind, and I can control you. We do this with anger. We do this with insecurity. We do this with people at Walmart that we think aren't the kind of people we think they should be. We do this with the poor. We do this with race. We do this all through different kinds of history. We say we are going to belittle people into what we think we should, they should be. And it makes us feel superior. And Jesus said that's stupid. It's wrong and it goes against the image of God. And so for anger, maybe some of you, that's, you stop there today. Go back and think about anger. Maybe there's people in your heart that you're constantly belittling, that you're lessening. You can't possibly love the Lord and love others as one commandment as he's called you to because you are so filled with anger and bitterness. And Jesus says you're murdering them in your mind and your heart. You have a heart problem. It needs changed by Jesus. And you can't do it. You can't fix it. I can't fix it. I can't fix the anger, pain, and hurt that I have from people long ago that still come up sometimes. I can't fix it. I have to bring it open-handedly before Jesus. Jesus says... This is how anger and broken relationships should be approached in the kingdom. Boom. And then he has those thoughts we read last week. Now he's saying, this is how sex and sexual desire works and how it should be approached in the kingdom. Before we unpack this, I need to unearth the bias that we come to with this. Some of us were raised or have been highly marinated in what I would call churchianity, right? And so we might have grown up in times of books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye or uh, maybe Love Languages Fits in This or some of Gary Smalley's stuff. I don't want to throw him under the bus, but maybe uh, um, True Love Waits conferences where we have swung this pendulum to where we have made sex this 
big, icky, sinful thing. Ooh, R-rated movies and sex and stuff, gross. That's where we come about it. We say, oh, this is bad. We have some people on the other spectrum say, I don't want nothing to do with the Christian sexual ethic because we are above that now. As a culture, we have grown to really understand sex and Jesus' repetitive stuff in the Bible. That's all their culture back when women had to cover their heads, and we have grown above that. So we have the sexual revolution where we could do whatever we want, right? And so we acknowledge this. Please, church, one body, one faith, and baptism. Look around and acknowledge that there are people of every walk in life. There are people in here who have been sexually abused. There are people in here who think sexual abuse doesn't really exist. There are people in here who are deeply scarred when we talk about porn. There are people who think, eh, no big deal, right? And so we have a vast variety of people here. We have people watching at home in this room that aren't even believers, have no idea what to do with this. And so as soon as we start talking about what Jesus says about sex, we so quickly prop it up and we say what he says about sex and what he says about homosexuality and what he says about abortion, these are the biggest issues in the kingdom. And they're not. The biggest issue in the kingdom is that you are separated from God. And the only way you get fixed is through Jesus Christ. And so when we come to scriptures like this, please, have empathy with each other and acknowledge we all come from different backgrounds. And Jesus isn't coming out of the chute saying, you know what the greatest commandment is? Stop having sex. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus has a, a deep passion and desire for sexual desire. He thinks it's a great deal. We'll talk about it here in a minute. Jesus is saying, it turns out we're all poor in spirit and corrupt in heart and we need Jesus. And so as we walk into this and we acknowledge we all have different backgrounds in this, please remember... All of us need Jesus. And we're not here this morning to say, you know what the biggest issue in our culture and our church is? Sex. That's not what we're here for. We're saying the biggest issue is that we have grown apart from the image that God created us to grow towards. And we can only get that fixed through Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about a king and a kingdom, his image, what he designed us for, and how we have completely gotten away from that through the world, the flesh, the devil, uh, pick an enemy. They're all working together against these things. And the only way we get it fixed is through Jesus. Light topics we get to deal with next couple weeks. Next week we're talking about divorce, so buckle up. Here we go. This week, sex, lust, sexual desire. I'm going to read it again, Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully uh, or with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Better for you to lose one of the members than the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right eye causes you to sin, yep, get rid of that, throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Again, Jesus is fulfilling the law. This is what he's saying. He's come to fulfill the law. This is what we're talking about. And, and it's really important here to understand Jesus isn't fully right now coming out about what he thinks about marriage. He'll get there in like 14 chapters in Matthew 19. He has some real specific things to say about marriage. But in general, when Jesus is asked about marriage, sex, sexuality, anything, he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Paul does the same thing. If we want to understand anything in the world, we sick over the years of me preaching of constantly going back to Genesis 1 and 2. But if you don't understand Genesis 1 and 2, the rest of the Bible doesn't mean anything to you. Stop reading Revelation. Try to figure out the end times. Because the end times only make sense if you understand your protology. Eschatology defines your protology. Mm, Bible nerd. Those words mean how you see things start is how they end. Right? This is what the Bible means. And so we need to understand Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus brings everything there. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Jesus isn't prude. Jesus isn't trying to repress all sexual desire. For Jesus, anything that would fracture the marital covenant and fracture the relationships that God's given for humanity is a distortion and makes us less human. And that's a big deal. And we need to be thinking about what does it mean to be human objectively, 
Not, not relatively, not, oh, what does Brian think? What does Keith think? What does Debbie think? What does Jesus, what does the Lord say about what it means to be human? And then anything that's not that is a distortion of that and is making us less human. Interestingly enough, look around. Evil is making all these things less human, less meaningful. So I don't need to give you analogies of that. We'll talk more about that later. We're going to camp verse 28 for a while because we need to define some of these terms um, because uh, none of us want to think that this applies to us and because they're terms that could be tricky. So first we're going to look at the word looks. Anyone who looks uh, at, uh, it says anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. So anyone who looks, looks is a tricky word in our culture because you can like look, ah, right, right, ah. you can just look at something, right? Um, but then the Greek here is like a, uh, a long focused glance. Uh, we have a word for that. You know what it is? Stare, right? How many of you ever told your kid, like, don't stop staring, right? <clears throat> this is the Greek word. We're not talking about, like, anyone who looks, whew, like, oh, there's something attractive. Oh, whoops. Oh, I just sinned. I should have cut off my arm. That's not what Jesus is saying. To acknowledge someone as attractive is not lust. This is an important point. We're not going to unpack that a ton. It's kind of understood, right? Um, when you see, there are beautiful people in the world, right? Have you seen my wife? But there, there are beautiful people in the world. And when you see them and you acknowledge them as beautiful, this is not what Jesus is talking about. He says this is a look, a long-intended stare for what purpose? For lust. We got a, an image here that I think is helpful. Is, is lust, help me, do you think lust is a Christian word? Do you use it like at your job? Has anyone ever been like, oh man, I just lust after getting this sale or whatever. Does this happen? I think, you can think about it. I think, it's a, I think it's mostly a Christian word, and so we over-Christianize it, and we just want to talk about what it means. I've got a slide here of different translations, maybe, that uh, kind of different uh, translations unpack this word lust. So Matthew 5, 28, um, in the NIV, it says, anyone who looks has this stare at a woman lustfully. The New American Standard Bible, the NASB, uh, it says, anyone who looks at a woman with lust for her. Um, the NRSV, New Revised Standard Bible, says, anyone who looks at a woman with lust. I think the ESV is very helpful to us, uh, what we just read. It says, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. If I were to say, here's how we should read this in the Greek, and I'm not some Greek expert, expert who knows all Greek, but uh, the scholars that I read, the things that I'm understanding, when I look at these word studies, here's a great translation. Anyone who stares at a woman in order to fuel sexual desire for her, this is lust. You are taking someone else, you are using what you see in them to fuel sexual desire in yourself. This is what we're talking about with lust. Some of you are like, no, duh. I understand the word lust. It's important that we define this because by the end of the day, if you struggle with this, evil in your flesh is going to work hard to belittle this. Ah, no, it's not lust. I don't really have lust. If you're fueling sexual desire, you're lusting. That's what's happening. Good? We good? We good? Yeah. No one wants to talk about this. Everyone's concerned. Where are we going here? Third word, he's committed adultery where? In his heart. Now we're back to this language of heart. Murder in the heart. We need a heart change. This tension of heart. Jesus is going to come back to this over and over and over. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So concerned with the heart. The heart is the seat of will and emotions and desire. The heart is, for us, like we kind of separate these things, body, soul, and mind, all this. Heart is like this all-encompassing word almost for like all of your desires, your will, your, your stuffs come together. This is why Jesus goes on to use several words. I love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? He wants to make sure you know it's everything, and heart encompasses all these things. There's something fundamental about your desires, about my desires, that's off here. They've their heart. 
He says that adultery is rooted in the heart. No one wakes up, maybe one time in a million, billion, gazillion, you just wake up, poof, I'm in bed with someone else's wife. Whoops, how did that happen? Must have been the mafia who threw me here, right? No, see, this doesn't happen. Jesus is trying to make you understand, hey, the idea of, of committing sexual, fulfilling sexual desires with some other human being, the idea of that is not rooted in just, oops, it happened, or it's not the core is adultery. The core is in the heart. There's something fundamental in your heart that needs fixed. And those of us who want excuses for, well, these women dress this way, well, our culture is too over-sexualized, well, the internet, whatever excuse you want, it's a heart problem. Quit making excuses. You have a heart problem. That's where it has to be fixed. The affair happened because of a heart problem. The sexual abuse happened because of a heart problem. Not yours sometimes, but it was against you. Definitely not yours, but because of a heart problem. And those things are worth knowing. It helps us not blame ourselves sometimes if it was an act committed against us. It certainly helps us blame ourselves if it's something that we're committing. Say, this is, this is on me. This is a heart problem. Jesus cares about that. Jesus is talking about the movies that we play in our heads in order to take from other people. Just like when we encapsulate them in our brains to whip them into submission with our anger. If you've ever been a victim of this long, lustful glance or stare, or if you've ever been the perpetrator of it, you know exactly what he's talking about here. I don't have to keep unpacking this and make it awkward for everyone. You know. You know what this is. You guys have seen the cartoons with the cat calls and the, woo, you know, you know what this is talking about. But it's interesting that Jesus cares so much about your heart. These things that are unseen. No one sees that, that someone walks by and you start playing the movie in your head. And you start imagining that person immediately for you becomes an object of sexual gratification for you, for your desires. No one sees that. Jesus does. Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not waiting for you to get in bed with someone else's spouse. You have a heart problem because you're lusting after someone else. We have this tension where we want to be like God. I've already covered this, but we, we tend to want to be like God, and so what we do is we want to take other people down and reduce them into our stuffs and things. The thing is, God gave us these desires, and God gave us desires within boundaries. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But when you, when you look in general at food, drink, money, adrenaline, sex, God has given us boundaries to make all these things meaningful. If you have pancakes every morning for breakfast with strawberries and all the toppings, whatever you put on your pancakes, then it doesn't mean anything when you have pancakes for Mother's Day. It means nothing. You have pancakes every day. That sounds like a cute analogy, but we do this with food, right? All of us overindulge in food. Look at the rest of the world, how they approach food, right? All of us have lost this idea of celebratory food. Eating cake at every stinking weekend because it's Saturday, because it's 2 p.m., because it's cupcake day, because it's donut day every Thursday, whatever it is, then it doesn't mean anything to consume a donut for someone's birthday. That celebration is lost. If you give your kids candy every night, then them getting candy on Halloween doesn't really mean anything. It's just more excess candy. This isn't a judgment on how you parent sugar in your family. This is just an acknowledgement of logical truth. The more that you consume something and you take it outside of any meaningful boundary, it becomes meaningless. This is sex. The more you take it outside of the meaningful boundary that it was considered for, the less it means. It becomes nothing. And then it just damages. James 1, 14 and 15, the brother of Jesus, he wrote this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, he gives birth to sin. And sin, when it was fully grown, brings forth death. We all have these desires for consuming. Food, sugar, whatever it is. Pick a thing. 
we make it an ultimate thing. It's called an idol, idolatry. We take a good thing God's given us, we make it an ultimate thing, and it becomes for our glory, for our orbit. You remember when uh, during Christmas time I drew that orbit thing and how one thing's to orbit us? You make everything, bring it into your orbit. This is me, this is how I control it. God created you for his glory and your joy, and you don't get joy, and joy doesn't make any sense to you if it's not about his glory because you're trying to hold things you can't hold. You can't control your sexual desire. You can't control your desire for food. You can't control your desire to be angry and yell at your kids or yell at your spouse or yell at the people in the room. You can't control that. It's a heart problem. All these things are meant to be for God, for God to say, here's your boundaries, and only through me can these make sense. There are several reasons, we're going to hit on three, why Jesus cares so much. It's, I think it's just worth questioning, like, why does Jesus care so much about this? Surely Jesus knew that in the 21st century we'd have lots of things to argue about. So why is the second thing he comes out of the shoot with, you've heard it said, but I say, why is it sex and sexual desire? I mean, maybe, maybe that doesn't bother you, but to me it's like, like, man, God gave us the Bible, ahistorical, all people of all time, and then this is an issue he just really drills down on. Why? I think there's three reasons why. First, sexual desire and sex are good. Pastor Dave said sex are good. I did. Tell your friends. Sex is good. And it's, this is why your kids aren't in the room, right? Um, it's so important that you hear that, whether you are an old person, a young person, whether you're a teenager, uh, whether you're trying to figure out if you should delete TikTok, stop. Let's first talk about the fundamental truths of these things. Sex is good. It's a good thing God gave us, and we're going to unpack what that means. Jesus is not prude. He's not trying to repress sexual desire, sexuality, sex. That's not what he's trying to do here. There are three ways most people tend to see sex in our culture. They see it as a gift, they see it as gross, or they see it as a god that they worship. Idolatry, right? And I can tell you that if you're married, you should figure out very quickly, if you're single, anyone in this room, you should figure out where you lean pretty quickly. Because it's damaging. If you see it as gross and you can't get to say sex is good and God's given it to me, then you're missing it. But a lot of us would say, no, this is a God. I worship on the altar of sex. Everything's about sex. I want gratification. And some of us say, this is gross. I don't want it. Ew, ew. I was taught that it's sinful and yucky and only for making babies and every now and then to make my husband happy. But just change the oil. Let's move on. No, 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 no. God says sex is good. We see early on, again, everything Jesus pulls from Genesis 1 and 2. Later on, Matthew 19, he directly uh, quotes, uh, man shall leave his father and mother, uh, cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. That's a sexual analogy, an intimate thing. Not just literally sex, intercourse, right? But actually an intimate thing of coming together more so than, than you. There's nothing else. No, other, think of something else you could do to come closer to someone than sex. You can't, right? Intimate, deep, meaningful thing. They shall cleave to his wife. The two shall be one f flesh. They were naked and unashamed. This is what Genesis tells us. Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1, 27, we see God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them both male and female. He created them. So God creates these beautiful people, male and female. He creates them. Separate genders, he creates them, and he looks at them, and he says, what about them? That they are very good. Six times he said, or uh, several other times, he said things are good right? But when he creates man and woman in his image and he looks at them, their, their naked body shape and the fact that they have sex together, he says what? This is very good. I, some of you people are super squirmy right now. And you're like, I can't believe we're saying some of this stuff. It's okay. We're going somewhere with this. It's just so important because we're going to walk out and forget this. And you're going to walk out and be confused by what the culture says about sex, right? 
Sex is good in the boundaries God put it together. And God put it together between a covenantal relationship between his created order with a man and woman in a covenantal relationship that glorifies him and gives them joy. And when you remove it from that, it messes it up. Jesus would have grown up hearing Song of Solomon read to him, or Song of Songs is probably a better way to state it because there's an argument on how much of it Solomon wrote. You don't care about that right now. But Jesus grew up reading Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, whatever you call it, and he would have heard it read to him every year of his life in synagogue growing up. There was a particular festival they read this, and what, <laughs> who, raise your hand if you've read Song of Songs. Yeah, this is like erotic biblical poetry, okay? So if you've never read it, and you're like, the, the Bible has nothing to say about sex, I'm not about it, go home and read Song of Songs, okay? It'll make you squirm. It's really uncomfortable, right? There's some things there, it's like, okay, this is not like, this isn't Jesus talk. We don't teach, uh, if you're a Sunday school teacher, you probably didn't teach this in your Sunday school class as much, because it's intense stuff, right? Here's, uh, here's one thing Jesus would have heard from it as he grew up reading this in the temple and, and hearing it read to him. Song of Songs 8, 6, and 7. Uh, this is the, uh, the bride talking to the shepherd, the, the groom. Uh, there's a lot of ways to break that down. But here's what she says. Set me a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce, uh, uh, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Again, love in Song of Songs is both a uh, deep, meaningful, emotional passion and a physical passion that culminates in sex. So when she says love, she's talking about making love, okay? So don't get confused there, right? Uh, love is strong, uh, jealous, and fierce as the grave. It flashes, it's flashes. Ashes are like fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Sex and sexual desire are a powerful and deep and meaningful thing. And I think that the analogy of this is going, well, we could talk about water for a little bit, we're going to talk about fire instead. Um, let's talk about fire. Is fire good or bad? <laughs> yeah, Right? Yeah, I mean, we can do that cute thing of like, yes. It's a, here's the point. That's a, that's a stupid question, right? Like, is fire good or bad? It's tricky because, like, on one sense, if fire burnt down your house yesterday, you're kind of like in the camp of, yeah, fire sucks. I don't want fire. Like, it's a bad deal, right? But if you sat by a fire last night to, you know, cook the only meal that you had that day and to celebrate time with your family, then you'd be like, man, fire is really good. And all through history, we could see that fire is really great. Please don't burn the church down. Thank you, Lord. Uh, so uh, this is a candle. You understand this, and this is fire. Um, fire is this interesting thing because right now it's contained and it has boundaries. And so if I set this on a table, it's got an ambiance, right? And it creates this like whatever, this warmth. And some of you grew up and maybe you had a hearth or hearth. I never remember how to say it, Mr. Wade. Hearth. Uh, so you grew up with a hearth, and then you had fire, and you had to put wood in. And the whole family had to work together to to give heat to the whole house and there's a fire involved in that. Some of you understand like, hey, I need fire to cook food that several people enjoy, right? Fire is a great, complex, powerful good. But if I stick my hand in here, that fire is not okay, right? All of a sudden that fire becomes bad to that finger right there. It was not a good experience, right? Some of you are tougher than I am. Oh, I'll put my hand in the fire. Neat for you, okay? You're a super tough, manly, macho guy. You can come touch the fire later. In general, we understand that fire burns. <laughs> Enough on that. Um, when fire is contained in the situations it's meant for, then we're safe. Fire makes sense. When fire gets ablaze and wrecks homes and entire cities and entire situations and eco economies, then it's a problem. But fire is a great, complex, powerful good. And in the scriptures, 
the analogy they use to talk about the passion for a covenant relationship, husband and wife, the sexual desire and the sexual combination of, of being together and coming together sexually is fire. I think that's important to us because if you struggle with sexual desire the way Jesus talks about, if you struggle with this lustful gaze, you know that it consumes you. You know that, that sexuality and the desire for it and, and the sexual desires that burn in you, this burning passion, that it'll consume you and it'll kill you. Just like James says, these desires, they'll drag you away, they'll breed forth sin, and that will ultimately kill you. It'll murder you. The sin is corrupting and kill you because it's a complex, meaningful good. And outside of the boundaries, like fire, it'll mess you up quick. Jesus is saying that his background, reading Song of Songs, uh, knowing Genesis 1 and 2, later on we talked about Matthew 19, Jesus understands that sex is meant for two things. Sex is meant to create life and to enjoy life in the covenantal relationship God's given it to. And when it's outside of those boundaries, it breaks up very quickly. And, and some of you, again, so quick say, oh, that's, let me think of all these arguments on how that kind of breaks down. Stop. Take Jesus at his word here. Because we've all seen how adultery, how these lustful glances mess people up. I think there's a second reason that Jesus cares so much about this aside from just he grew up around it. He, he grew up seeing that sex is good. Jesus has a particular vision of what human beings are here for and what we're supposed to do with this humanity he's given us. And we get that from Matthew 22. I said earlier, we'll probably read this every week. We're going to read it right now. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He says, I've come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And then later on in Matthew 22, the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said to them, here's the big one. As the Greek said, here's the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul and with your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. When he says like it, he doesn't mean, oh, here's extra credit. He's saying, no, these two are one commandment. This is together. You can't do one without the other. They're inextricably connected. It is like it, meaning it is like it in importance. It is like it in the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And as a commandment on top of it, with it, in the same line, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depends all of the law and all of the prophets. Jesus says the greatest thing that we could be doing. All of it, 613 laws, all can be summed up in one main one. Love God and love others. Love God with everything you have and love other people. And Jesus knows that's what we're here for. That's what we were created for. This is the new humanity. And when you play that movie in your head, when you belittle someone with your anger and you capture them, when you take someone and you say, you are now an object for my sexual pleasure, you can pretend all you want that you actually value that person. And you can play in your mind, well, you know, maybe I prayed for them later, or whatever. Or, you know, you try to be little, it's no big deal. As soon as you do that, you have completely corrupted what God intended you for in humanity. Lust degrades the one that is lusting and the one being lusted after. Immediately, both of you become inhumane. You both become less than what God created you for. God created you for more than that. He created you to love other people. Man, I hope that those of you who are hearing this, that, that are having this weight fall on you, and you know, you know this is your thing. You know this is something you struggle with. Those of you who are so naive to this and pretend like it's not around you when everyone's telling you, this is everywhere, that you wake up. Say, Jesus created bounds in a beautiful, powerful, meaningful way, just like fire. It's complex, beautiful, wonderful, good. And we're destroying it. He told us to love each other. 
And instead, we're belittling each other into the little movies we play in our head for our own gratification. We can be like God. We can decide what people are for. We can decide what they're useful for. Stop. You have a heart problem. I have a heart problem. We've got to get away from this. It's messing us up. If you haven't caught this yet, Jesus is intolerant of behavior that fractions relationships and abuses other humans because love is what we're made for. It's intolerant of it. And you hear Jesus over and over so quickly when he sees the Pharisees and Sadducees but little people. He can't handle it because he knew we were not created to take other people and cram them in our minds and what we think and play little movies to gain something from them. We were created to love other people. So here we go. Uh, here's the big walrus in the room. We're the first culture in all of humanity to form an entire billion, multi-billion dollar industry around this exact thing Jesus is talking against. You might say, ah, oh, well, the Romans had their temples to Aphrodite and all this. No, no, no. They weren't making billions of dollars off of one single act of sex and viewing sexuality. That's not how it was working. Uh, the culture thrived on many other things, and if that temple fell apart, maybe some cities would go, but Rome would still stand. So, so, so don't argue me there. No other culture in all of human history, aside from where we're at, 21st century West, has made a billion-dollar industry out of adultery, out of playing movies in our head, out of how convenient it is just to find it. What am I talking about? Porn. We got to talk about porn, guys. Because it's wrecking people. Gosh. It's everywhere. Jesus knows that you don't just poof, wake up, and have an affair. How do you think people get to the point of thinking that it's okay to sexually abuse children? How do you think they get to the point of, of doing these awful acts that we just want to throw them in prison and kill them? We don't take any culpability. Like, we have nothing to blame. In the shows you watch, how often is porn and sex made light of? Like, it doesn't matter. Look at statistics on it. Look up how often porn is the blunt of the joke in shows like Friends, New Girl, The Office. And this isn't to say if you watch those, you're an adulterer. That's not the point. The point is, we're culpable. We've been complicit in this. And as a church, as Christians, we need to say, hold on. Not that we need to go pick at every movie at the movie theater. That's not what I'm saying. Calm down. I'm saying we need to just open our eyes. Because what evil is wanting us to say is, eh, there's bigger fish to fry. I got to vote against Biden. Stop. Look at what Jesus says. Second issue he comes out of the shoot with. Adultery. It's in your heart. And we've got the biggest industry that's destroying it. That is not loving your neighbor as yourself. If you struggle with porn, if you know someone who struggles with porn, love them enough to talk to them about what Jesus says. Don't whip and abuse them and make them less than you. Love them because you're both porn spirit. And we need people to boldly talk about it. Because, ha, come on. I'm sorry, church. I prayed all week that I wouldn't struggle this much with this message. Those of us who are constantly being recovered need people to speak into our lives about it because we've seen the redemption on the other side. <clears throat> and those of you who are continuing to corrupt yourself, other relationships, your family, man, there's light on the other side of this. Jesus can change your heart. 
as a church, we need to have a posture of talking about it. Whew. Third reason that Jesus is in it. He says sex is good. Jesus believes that. He saw it growing up. He knew all that. Uh, it's in the Bible. Jesus has a particular view of how we should approach humanity. We're supposed to love each other. Porn industry, a lot of the shows you watch that is not communicating the love of the Father. So we need to be thinking about that. The third reason, is, I think, or at least something that's interesting to point out that we might overlook in our gender revolution nowadays. What gender is Jesus talking to here? He says men. Who were, who were his listeners? Both men and women. So he was addressing, we've talked about this before, the crowds gathered. And, and we see in Luke and other places, this was an eclectic crowd. I mean, there could have been more than 500 people here. We have no idea. Tons of people, though. Large crowd, crowd gathered. Men, women, poor, uh, broken people, uh, maybe some children. There's a whole eclectic group. And he addresses men. I think that's interesting. And I think that but before we get nuts about gender revolution and stuff, just, just ask yourself, we don't need to take a vote, which gender has used sexual desire to create oppression and belittle the other in history? Which gender has done that more? Men. Okay. That's worth acknowledging, right? Right now, today, any woman in our church could make more money in the porn industry than she's making right now at her current job. Immediately. I'm talking tenfold. And that's not a proposition. You've already heard me talk about how broken and awful it is. Don't go seek those jobs. I'm saying that it's a ridiculous part of our culture that our daughters are growing up in a world where they could make more money and have everything the world says they desire if they just give their bodies into these relationships. It's a simple thing. No big deal. Just film it. Just take pictures of your feet. No big deal. It's everywhere. And Jesus is talking to men. He's not stupid. He knows women struggle with sexual desire. He knows women lust. You don't have a past woman who looks at porn. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not dumb. But Jesus says, I, what is, <laughs> Jesus is not just teaching an individual morality. He's launching the kingdom. And this new humanity, this kingdom is a safe place for women. Hear that. Because all through history, it hasn't been. And as a woman, you know that. You know that you have to be careful because people will take advantage of you. Men will take advantage of you. And I know that some of you men have had bad experiences and I know that other things happen. I'm not belittling that. I understand that happens. I just want to take the text of what it says and call out that all through history, women have been oppressed and belittled through sex. They've been objectified. And I think it's interesting that right now, the most lucrative, easy way for them to make money is to sell their bodies online. And I think as a church, that should drive us nuts. And it should change the way we treat our wives, the way we treat our children, the way that we teach Sunday school, the way that we teach youth group. And it doesn't start with poof, waking up in bed with someone's wife. It starts in your heart. It starts with how you approach your social media. It starts with the apps that you have on your phone. It starts with the things that you become lackadaisical to or lazy to. So what do we do? Uh, how, how are you guys doing, man? This is... What do we do with this? This is heavy stuff. Jesus goes on to explain it. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, get it out. Tear it out. Rip that eye out. Uh, throw it away. It's better for you to uh, lose a member than your whole body. If your right hand causes you to sin, yep, done with that sucker. Get it away. It's better for you to lose one member than uh, for it to go in hell. Why is Jesus taking this so seriously? Clearly, clearly he's not seriously considering that this is the exact action to take for two reasons, and I'm sure this is really logical. First reason, can you still lust and struggle with sexual desire without a hand or without an eye? 
Yes. And secondly, if he thinks that cutting off a body part is a solution, he left one out. Thank you. So, clearly that's, I'm not trying to be crass. I'm trying to, this is just worth noting. Like, I think Jesus is uh, being serious about something else here. In the Psalms and the Proverbs and wisdom literature, your eye and your hand and your foot were deeply meaningful. It symbolized how you see the world, how you act in the world, and your life path as you walk in the world. I think Jesus is piggybacking off that to say something poetic here about your hand, what you do in the world. How you physically approach your sexual desires and how you see what you see, what you allow into your body, what you allow your vision would be a better way to put that. How you see the world, your vision of the world. How do you see the opposite sex? How do you see sexual desire? How do you deal with sexual desire with your goings about in life? Anything that you must have that causes you to stumble, Jesus has cut it out. You gotta be done with it. Because the kingdom is a safe place for women. The kingdom is a place where we love each other and we don't belittle each other in our minds. What a beautiful place to live. And so I would much rather live in that place without an eye and without a hand than to try to go through the world as broken as it is with eyes and hands. Do you understand the analogy here? I'm not saying to gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you've got to be willing to get it out, cast it out. And for some of you, some of you that looks like your cell phone. I meant to bring mine up here to hold it up. Um, some of you, that is your struggle, and you know it. I don't need to call it out. Man, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you can find ways to belittle the opposite sex so quickly in your mind with those things. And for some of you, you need a dumb phone. And that's super inconvenient, and you will be the lamest person in your circle, and you won't be able to track my calories in the same way, and I won't have this app. We all have a reason, the app that makes our life so beneficial. Jesus says the kingdom is for loving each other. And if this thing is causing you not to love each other, to belittle people, it is that important. What level are we willing to take marriage, sex, sexual desires, and the love of others seriously? Church? How serious are we? Do we love each other enough to say, hey, bro, I'll buy you a dumb phone for a couple months because I care about you getting away from this. I could talk a lot about uh, different, different avenues there of things to cut out. Um, but I just say, empower God's spirit that he would lay something on your mind. It, you know. You're hearing all this. You're seeing the brokenness come out of all this. You know. There are things in your life that are more important than the kingdom. Jesus says, if they're causing you to stumble, if they're causing you to not love other people, if they're causing you to belittle people in your mind, cut it out. Just like Jesus said last week, right? Hey, hey, leave the goat at the altar and take the three-day trip, six-day round trip back to where you were from. Leave that and go reconcile with someone because reconciling with that brother or sister in Christ is way more important than pretending to worship while you have that broken relationship. Jesus cares so much about this new humanity, loving each other and not being a part of broken relationships. So you got anger, you got lust, cut it out. You have a heart problem. Where does, where does this leave us, you know? Um, the heart needs to be changed. None of us can fix this by mere adherence to the law. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. Getting rid of the internet in your house, unplugging your router at 9 p.m., cutting out TikTok... That's not going to solve your sexual desire issues, your lust, your belittling of other humans so that you can get sexual gratification. That won't fix it. In the same way that choosing not to drive is going to fix your anger issue, that's not going to fix it. 
your heart needs change. And so the first thing that we have to do is this. Come to Jesus and say, I, I got to raise the white flag. I, I see what you're saying, Jesus. I look at the culture around us, and I'm a part of it. I'm a part of supporting and laughing and, and being uh, tolerant of the porn industry, which is, uh, by the way, necessarily hitched to the sex trade. You want to think you're really upset and fired up about the sex trade? The porn industry is that. <laughs> without, they can't exist without each other. Um, that's sort of another time. So what do we do? We're going over time. I know that. This is too important. Our heart needs change, and it takes a thousand small decisions that only Jesus can do. And so if you're here and you know your heart needs change, anger, lust, whatever it is, there are two things that I want you to know. Two things. You're sitting, what do I do, David? These are two things that are so deeply woven into who I am as a man that I could talk for another hour about them, but I'm just going to skim over them. But if you need to know them, come talk to me about them. Two things. First is confession. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is great and has power as it is working. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for another. That is something we can't do in here in an hour and 20 minute service. It's not possible. Y'all aren't just going to start standing up and confessing your sins. Why? Because you don't know each other. And some of you might be corrupt enough to belittle that person, hurt them. We're all tense and we're all afraid of that. This is why we have life groups. This is why we say we're one body, one faith, one baptism. That we preach that enough that you would actually believe you need people in your life to speak truth in your life. Because you wear blinders. You don't know what you don't know. And I pray that God loves you enough and puts someone in your life and you have ears to hear enough that they say, Hey, brother, hey, sister, you clearly struggle with this. And as a member of this church, as a member of the kingdom of God, I'm, I can't put up with it. And I love you too much to just let you keep hiding out in this struggle. We've got to bring it to the light. Let's have postures of confession. Statistically, someone sitting within 10 feet of you struggles with this. So broken over it. Statistics are so wild on this stuff. The age of kids getting involved in this stuff, golly. It's all over. May our church, church, if you're a memorial member, may we have a posture of confession. Please, start it. As uncomfortable as it may be, find people in the church that you trust to confess them. Because the Bible tells us to. Confess your sins to one another and pray for another, you'll be healed. May that lead to other people feeling comfortable in our church to confess. Because without that confession, we can't have this posture. We can't hide in the dark about these things. We have to bring them to the light. Say, Jesus, I need you. And that's not you coming up on stage and telling everyone all your sin. That's finding some people around. Confess your sin. Pray for one another. Second thing is accountability. We talk a lot here about prayer, church, and scripture. Measure all your life by those three things. What is your relationship like the last five days with prayer? What is your relationship like with scripture? What is your relationship like with the church? We already talked about confession. You can't confess to yourself. You need other people to confess, right? First uh, uh, John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us of our sins. Us and our. We're together in this, okay? So you need that accountability. Prayer, church, and scripture. Single people, married people, couples, parents, youth, kids. If you're a parent, you're sitting there thinking, I don't know what to do with TikTok, man. I hear all the awful things about it. If you're a youth kid, come on. Like, be, be real with yourself. TikTok has the worst stuff on it. So does Snapchat and Instagram. And I'm not sitting up here saying, it's the devil, throw it away. I'm saying that if it causes you to stumble in the least bit, get it out. What would it look like? How could you love other people? If you're a youth, how are you damaging your future marriage that God may have for you or your future single life that God has for his glory? How are you damaging it by the way that you're corrupting the image of sex and marriage through your Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok? Think about that. You don't know. Parents, 
We gotta be thinking about these things. Don't let it hide. Single people, help each other. Married people, we've gotta be talking about this as a church. What do we do? What do we do from here, man? We gotta have confession. We've gotta have accountability. We're gonna come, uh, Scott's gonna come. We're gonna sing a response song. How do we respond to this? If you come to the front and everyone thinks you're a porn addict and they're going to judge you, of course, I get that, right? We just talked about sex. So if you come to the front and you pray, then maybe you've had an affair, maybe you, whatever. Forget it. Jesus says that the kingdom is so beautiful and so valuable. It's a safe place for women. It's a safe place where we treat each other with love. We don't belittle each other and encapsulate each other in cages where we abuse each other with our anger. We abuse each other by, by making each other sexual objects. Your posture right now has to be this. And if you're sitting here, you think, I'm the worst person in the world. I don't want anyone to know how dark I am in this hole. I've seen it. I've seen a lot of darkness in this. And I've seen God change a lot of people through it. Open your hands today. Raise the white flag and say, I've got to confess. I've got to confess and have accountability. That's why God's brought you here. Why else did God bring you here on Sex Sunday? What a weird day to be here if you're new here, if you're tuning in. What an intense time to get here. Pastor's preaching so many minutes over, saying all the weird things. It's not like this every Sunday, but we hit things. We read the scripture. We say, what does Jesus say? This is your time to respond. God's moving in you. At the very least, open your hands and say, I need to have postures of confession and prayer. And maybe if you're, you're in, in health and you're, you're doing the right things as a believer and all that, maybe you say, how can I exemplify this posture of confession and prayer? Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. How do we get our hearts changed? Through Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray. God, beyond all the words that we have to say about this super heavy topic and uh, it's so murky in our culture to make sense of what we even do with this, I pray that your spirit would speak beyond anything I say, beyond, beyond anything that our biases that are here, God, that your spirit would move in our hearts to say, you have shown us your kingdom. You have shown us your design for marriage, for sex, for sexual desire, and it is a beautiful, powerful, and complex good. God, I pray that, that we would make sense of those things this morning and that you would give us postures of confession. You'd give us postures of accountability towards you, towards the church, towards your scripture. Show us how to respond right now, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. If you need to pray with someone, I'll be down here. If you want to talk, grab someone, pray. This is your time to respond.